heavily, I'm a clown. Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, guys. I'm your host, Colin, a.k.a. Heavily Armed Clown. For those of you who don't know who I am, today is episode 11, and this is my first repeat guest. I have J.W. Weatherman back on the show today, and him and I had a really, really great conversation about a whole host of different topics, but I decided to title the episode Private Property because I feel like that is the best term that sort of all encompasses the conversation. If you haven't noticed, uh, the way I like to title my episodes is just really simple, two or three words that sort of embody what the entire premise was about. I don't like long, lengthy titles. Uh, So if you want to find out more about the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, if you want to see all of our episodes, you can find us on any of your favorite podcasting services. Just search for Bitcoin Echo Chamber, or you can go to our website, bitcoinechochamber.com. You can also get in touch with me over on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, like the letter C, or you can send me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe if you like the show, and let's get this thing started. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. JW, how are you today, my friend? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm looking forward to hanging out and chatting about some interesting stuff. Well, I'm really glad to have you back on the show. You're one of my all-time favorite guests, and I always enjoy getting a chance to talk with you. Right on, man. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So I think that the listeners are really going to like what we're talking about today. So I just finished reading the book, Democracy, the God that Failed. Uh, And for those of you listening out there that haven't read that book, it's one of the most ultimate red pills that I've ever read in my life. Uh, And it's really challenged me in the ways that I think about a lot of things. And I was actually tweeting about this yesterday, but one of the things that really got me thinking about is uh, the idea of egalitarianism and how it's pervaded and poisoned the way we think about a lot of things. And it's especially affected our society's ability to have a functioning free market. Um, JW, can you explain to the listeners what egalitarianism is? Yeah, the basic idea of egalitarianism, is, and most of us, if I say socialism, it will it will have uh, the right sort of things go off in your head. The basic idea is, you know, like Mark said, uh, uh, from everybody according to their ability to everybody according to their need, right? So the idea is that everybody should get the same amount of stuff, essentially. Um, that it would be unjust if you. Um, I'll, I'll I'll try to I'll try to steel man this this argument the best that I can. Let's say that you have um, you have fifteen kids, right? You just have a lot of kids, and uh, they're doing the best that they can. You know, some are are better at. Um, helping the family business than others, right? So maybe maybe it's a family of software developers. Um, 
uh, I'll apply this to myself, right? I've got six kids. I don't, I don't talk about the younger ones very much, but I have six kids and part of my homeschooling curriculum is that they're all going to learn how to write code, right? So let's say in 10 years, they're all old enough. We're all building mathbot.com together. We're all having a great time. And some of them are better than others, right? Like Will is brilliant. Um, he's particularly good at algorithms. So that's a really high, high dollar sort of problem set. Um, some of my other kids, I'm already sure they're not going to be as good at him at that, but they're they're uh, they're going to be better at you know let's say uh, artistic endeavors or um, uh, just kind of thinking through the user experience like more empathy, right? And mm. uh, frankly, that's not as high dollar of a paying thing, right? Like a great UX designer, uh, super valuable person, you know, but they don't get paid as much because it's not um, the marketplace just doesn't reward that. There's more people that are good at that than people that can do the really super hard like algorithm problem solving stuff. So the end result is that in a in sort of an evil capitalist environment, um, Will would get paid more than one of my other kids if we're all working together. But that's so that's so messed up, right? I mean, I should be uh, loving all of my kids equally. And if we're all working together on a project and we're all bringing to the table our best effort, um, we should all enjoy the spoils equally. We should all get rewarded equally. And uh, that will cut down on jealousy and rivalries and we'll all just be more of a happy family. So that concept, if you take that concept and you apply it outside the family, that's basically egalitarianism. Hmm, interesting. So why why would something like egalitarianism, which on paper it sounds uh, good, and actually if I, I think it, it lines up pretty well with our, with our uh, constitution, all men created equally, um, how is, why is egalitarianism incompatible with free market laissez-faire capitalism? Well, because... Um... Because in that in that steel man argument, I intentionally left out some things about justice. Um, and so one of the things that uh, that if you if you think about that scenario I painted, right? So Will is working on algorithms, um, and let's say uh, Sally is uh, is working on uh, U- UX, um, and I'm paying Will the same as I'm paying Sally because I think that that's um, that's that's a nice kind of fatherly way that I can treat all of my kids equally. The problem with that is that um, I'm actually stealing from Will to give to Sally because I'm I am not paying Will what his work is worth, um, and I don't get to decide what his work is worth. Um, really, ultimately, it's the consumer that decides what his work is worth. Um, so if, uh, if you're my customer, right, and you're coming to mathbot.com because you want your kids to learn programming, you're willing to pay a certain amount for that experience, right? Let's say you're willing to pay five bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or whatever. Um, if the reason that you're willing to pay so much is that Will has solved some really freaking hard problems that other people haven't solved. And Sally, you know, yeah, she's made some, you know, some nice little smooth user experiences. But at the end of the day, like, $45 of the $50 that you're paying is really because of work that Will did because it's freaking hard and and not very many people can do that, but it provides a lot of value to you and your family. And then I reward all of uh, all the participants equally. What I'm really doing is I'm taking the money that you as the consumer are trying to give to Will. The majority so, of it's trying to go to Will. And I'm acting as a corrupt intermediary and I'm stealing that money and redistributing it the way that uh, the way that you wouldn't actually want to give. 
Interesting. So if I could extrapolate out this analogy uh, in a different way, say uh, I was a was a car producer, like a car manufacturer, and I had an engineer who designed an engine that allowed the car to actually get you from point A to point B, the entire purpose of a motor vehicle. And then I have a design guy who is responsible for uh, the exterior, the sleekness of the exterior, the body kit, and then the paint job. Uh, if I remove one guy from that equation, my entire business model is useless. You wouldn't buy a car with no engine because it wouldn't serve its primary function. But if I were to get a, do away with the body kit and paint job guy, yeah, the car might not look as cool, but it would still serve its its primary function. That's what you're saying there? Well, no, what I'm saying is, I mean, you could go either way, right? So it, what it comes down to is all of all of the market place all of uh, all of us trading and exchanging things with each other really comes down to solving each other's problems so let's say that you as a consumer you want a car and you want it to look really good and you actually don't care that much about the engine and so the reason that you're buying this car the reason you're paying an extra seven percent msrp on this thing is because it's been designed very sleekly it's just beautiful looking and it has the same engine as other cars what you're doing there is you're saying i'm willing to trade the work that i've done in the past that now i have uh you know, in money. And I want to give that to the company that's produced this thing that solves my problem. And the company's job in that case is to be as efficient as possible at taking the money that the consumer wants to give and then distributing it to the people that have, uh, that are most responsible for that consumer satisfaction. And to the degree that they do that well and efficiently, it's a good company, right? So let's say that they hire a brilliant designer and that brilliant designer does really, really good work. And they take money from the consumer that's really happy with the exterior design, and they reward that designer well. This system will keep going, right? It, it's, it's, uh, it's an efficient system. It's sustainable uh, because the designer's not going to quit because he's done good work. Uh, the consumer is going to come back and keep buying these cars because their needs are being satisfied. And the company is going to get rewarded, like the shareholders will get rewarded for providing capital, right? But the, uh, the, the guy that built the engine will be rewarded for doing a good engine. But to the degree that that uh, that that check that comes into the company gets distributed to the people that are actually responsible for doing the work. And and some of the people are just responsible for taking risk and providing money, right? And they need to get rewarded efficiently or, or uh, commensurately as well. Um, to the degree it does that, it will thrive because ultimately it's doing a good job coordinating work and effort and capital of a bunch of uh, people and solving the consumer's need. Hmm. But if they uh, if they're bad at that, so they hire this brilliant designer, and the reason the consumer is buying the car is because it's sleek and beautiful, and they take that money and they pour, pay the designer really poorly, and they pay the guy that designed the engine well, but the consumer doesn't really care because the difference in the engine is you know not what got him to buy the car, then uh, then it's actually destroying wealth, right? It's it's going to be an inefficient machine that results in that designer leaving and going to some machine that's more efficient, right? Some system that's more efficient. Um, 
So it, it's a lot of times it's easier to think about this stuff without sort of the abstraction of a company and just think about like if a bunch of little cottage industries were at play. So for example, instead of me painting this picture of a family, if I just have a bunch of subcontractors and one of the subcontractors is a um, guy that's really good at algorithms and somebody else is really good at UX, but I say I'm only willing to pay the guy that's good at algorithm the same as the guy that's good at UX, um, I'm not going to be in business very long because I'm not going to be able to hire somebody that's good at algorithms and my product is going to suck and my consumers are going to go elsewhere. Um, so injustice in, uh, in normal circumstances, that injustice of trying to, to pay people equally, even though they do more or less valuable work, results in you going out of business. And that's where uh, the state comes in. That's where indoctrination comes in because... Uh, because consumers will reward people based on their work um, and they'll reward systems and companies and projects that are efficient at doing that and they'll punish the ones that aren't. So you can't really have egalitarianism stick around very long. Right. And, and punish in this case just meaning that they won't buy their products because their products are inferior. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what you need is you need the state to come in and say, um, no, even if these products are inferior – even if this work being done is less valuable. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons that work could be less valuable. It could be because a lot of people enjoy doing it. If you're a, a game uh, software developer, on average, you're going to make less than somebody that builds business apps. And that's because people really enjoy building games. There's more supply of people to build games. So as a result, if you show up and do a job that a lot of other people are happier to do, your contribution is less, right? Um, if you go solve a problem that you know involves uh, algorithms for finding oil um, instead of an algorithm to make a uh, really fun and exciting game, you're probably going to be rewarded more because other people don't want to do that work. So value, um, you know, is is also a factor of how unpleasant the task is, relatively speaking. And uh, if we don't reward that then uh, the system won't work. But the state can come in and they can force things. They can say, if you try to reward this person, ultimately there's a guy with a gun that's going to prevent you from doing so. You know, the, I think the reason I thought of the car analogy is because this conversation is very Ayn Randian. Uh, it, it reminds me of her literary trope about the factory that produces the engine. Uh, and they decided in the factory that they that every worker was of equal importance and that they were going to pay workers according to their need rather than according to their contribution. And the, the, the way the story goes is all the best engineers leave the plant because even though they're the backbone of the operation, they're not being paid according to their contribution. And then everything else falls apart because it turns into this bureaucratic nightmare of politics, which sort of is a great analogy of how our society works at the political level of people trying to prove to one another why their need is greater than, than someone else's rather than working hard to get paid fair value for their labor. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there's two ways that you can sort of uh, get money. There's the political means and the economic means. Um, 
The political means is basically theft. Um, that's where you know we get together in a group, we have a committee, we decide that we're going to impose these rules on people, and uh, maybe that's taxation or maybe it's regulation, whatever. There's ways to get paid really, really well doing that activity. Um, the most simple version of the political uh, means of uh, gaining wealth is just walk up to the street, point a gun at somebody, and say, give me your wallet. Now, you can put multiple layers in that. You can put uh, democratic systems, um, you can put voting, you can put, uh, like I said, regulation or other things, you know, layers of bureaucracy. But at the end of the day, you're either taking somebody's money through force or there's the economic means. And that's where you show up to somebody on the street and you say, hey, do you want to buy a popsicle? And if they say yes, you get money, right? Those are really the only two mechanisms to get uh, uh, rewarded financially. And uh um, egalitarianism doesn't like the latter. Egalitarianism um, doesn't want somebody to be able to walk up and say, hey, do you want to buy my popsicle? And if you do like that flavor, you buy it. If you don't, you don't buy it. Because that means that somebody else could walk up to you and have the wrong flavor and not get rewarded. And that creates inequality, right? And that's not what we're going for with egalitarianism. Hmm. Um, so it's... Uh, it, 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 there, it, like I said, you can kind of think of it in general, socialism versus capitalism, although those those things are really confusing. So I think um, a good way, a, a more clean way to think of it is private property or the absence of private property. Exactly. exactly. And that was exactly what I was about to say. Uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe does a really good job sort of dissecting this. And I, I, you're absolutely right. Uh, trying to talk through political philosophy with people, especially with people who haven't studied it extensively, is extremely difficult. Um, so it's, it tends to be best to break down the ideas rather than talk about the ideologies, the underlying ideologies, so to speak, rather than to just just to speak about the actual ideas. And Hans-Hermann Hoppe does a really good job of this in Democracy, the God That Failed, because he says, you know, private property rights, which if you're listening to this and you don't study political philosophy, freedom and free market that is essentially underlined by the idea of private property. Private property is probably one of the most fundamental building blocks of liberty, of freedom, and of the ability to live your own life in the pursuit of your own happiness and well-being. Without private property, you can't have freedom because then you're completely controlled by a totalitarian regime. But the idea of private property, I have this, therefore you do not have this because I have this, is in and of itself incompatible with egalitarianism. It is. And actually, it, it's um, egalitarianism is incompatible with the idea of anything. Like it's logically uh, impossible. So let's define private property uh, because that's really... Um, what a lot of, pretty much all of political philosophy comes down to defining private property. Mm -hmm. If you can get a good definition of private property, and it's not easy, um, but if you can get a good definition of private property, everything else falls into place. So private property means that you are the, um, the manager of an economic resource. It doesn't mean that you're going to use it for yourself, right? You can have a cheeseburger and you can either eat the cheeseburger or you can feed it to your kids or you can feed it to a stranger. But if you own the cheeseburger, that means that you manage the cheeseburger, that you have the uh, authority, the right, the power over that cheeseburger. Now, where it gets tricky is, and this is where the egalitarians will try to say, well, what if that cheeseburger smells bad? Right? What if uh, what if you don't do a good job managing that cheeseburger and you just let it rot? And now 
um, you're sitting in a restaurant with a rotted cheeseburger and you're telling everybody else that's trying to enjoy their meal that this is your private property and you own it. The answer to that is actually um, something that really uh, Tim May did the best job helping me, uh, I think, be able to describe clearly. Um, there's a book called um, The Enterprise of Law um, that he recommended to me uh, last year that that is excellent at this. Um, but really, private property, drawing that line is not easy. A, a, a better example than the cheeseburger might be, okay, I have some land and I can do whatever I want with this land. I've got you know 50 acres in, in Virginia. Um, but if I use this land poorly, right? Like, can I? Does that mean that I can poi, pour poison into my stream? Like, it's my stream, I own it. But that stream runs and it feeds other people's property. Or does that mean that I can blare, you know, uh, heavy metal music? Even if I have fifty acres, can I go right up to the edge of that property and blare heavy metal music uh, at the neighbors all around me? Right? Um, of course not. Right. So egalitarians, they'll use this, right? Socialists will use these questions and they'll present them, but they won't answer them. And that, mm -hmm. that's a key sort of rhetorical trick, right? Right. And the, the implication is, is that not. there is no answer, right? The, the, the implication is, well, geez, I guess private property is not that cut and dry. So private property doesn't really exist. That's where they need you to be. Um, in order for you to sign off on whatever their their next regulation is. But the answer is that there is a way to define private property, and that actually requires a free market legal system. And we have had free market legal systems at many points in history. In fact, they're the only legal systems that have ever worked and produced wealth. And it's only when the state sort of co-ops the legal system that it completely becomes ineffective. But custom and history and uh, culture and habit, um, what is normal behavior is actually built into private property. So if you lived in a, an area where it was very commonplace to play heavy metal music at the corner of your property over your neighbor's property, a free market legal system would look at that and say, yeah, that's expected, right? When the people that bought the property next door bought it, there was customs in place, expectations in place, and there's no injustice here when that person does that. Um, but that's not easy. It's, it, it really requires a free market. It requires that judges over time make rulings and people select judges that make the wisest rulings. So in a way, defining private property itself, it's as hard to do as the, the SAI pencil. I can't tell you how to build the pencil. I can't tell you how to define private property. But what I can tell you is that we have a history of being able to do that, to be able to define private property and to be able to build pencils, and that that happens when we have a free market operating to try to discover truth. So, and this is perfect. This is exactly where I want this conversation to go, uh, right into private property. But I want to, real quick, for those of you still listening that haven't tuned this out, I want we're going to loop this into Bitcoin. We're going to relate this back to how important this is to understand with Bitcoin. But I want to go down one more tangent real quick, and then we're going to come back to this idea of private property. Egalitarianism is extremely pervasive and, in fact, is deeply rooted in a lot of things in our society. I'll just list off a couple of examples. Things like affirmative action, um, things like uh, equal opportunity for housing, things like no child left behind in education, this new thing like common core math. Um, JW, can you talk a little bit about some of the social implications of these programs? 
Yeah, so we start out with with uh, trying to make everybody believe that private property doesn't exist because then it allows us the freedom that we need to steal. Um, and one of the things that we can layer on to that freedom, right? So now if I've convinced you that there is no real private property, that that, that 50 acres of land that you own isn't really owned by you, it's really... Um, it's really not that cut and dry. The next thing that that uh, that I need to do as an egalitarian is convince you that there should really be a committee to make these sort of decisions. We're not go- we're not going to be judges trying to find truth and justice. We're going to be a committee that manages regulation on that 50 acres. And maybe some of the regulation that we're going to manage on, you know, ostensibly your 50 acres is noise ordinances, right? And this committee now, if it's a very subtle flip, but this committee has become the owner of your property because the definition of property ownership is that you get to make the decisions about your own property as long as you're not violating somebody else's property rights, which has to be discovered by uh, good judges you know, in a free market system. So we've taken that away and we've made this committee now effectively the owner of your property. Now you, you might get to use your property, but the committee gets to decide how and when and why you use your property. So you're no longer the owner. You're no longer the, the person that manages that resource. You manage that resource as a subordinate, as a steward to the people that ultimately own it, which is the, you know, the, the city council or whatever it might be. And so, that's the goal. The goal is just to take your stuff. The goal is just simply to become the owner of your belongings. And I think it's worth pointing out that in a in a true private property scenario where I actually own um, whatever it is that I'm managing, I'm not accountable to anybody. And in fact, I'm not accountable to anybody for my profits nor my losses. And I can take my private property and I can destroy it. And as long as I'm not affecting anybody else by doing so, I have that right because it's my property. I can squander it. I can waste it. I can reap the profits from it. um, And that's my right as an owner of that property. Exactly. You will affect other people and you'll affect them greatly. But because you're the manager of it, you have the ability to be a very poor manager of it. And so let's say that you have 50 acres. You could use that 50 acres to effectively farm it. And that's going to drop the cost of food and poor people are not going to starve to death. Or you can use that 50 acres and you can manage it very, very poorly um, and produce nothing. In fact, you can take that 50 acres and pour toxic waste on it. And as long as it only damages your property and it doesn't violate anybody else's property rights, you can make that 50 acres completely worthless if you want to. That's what it means to have property management or property ownership. Now, a lot of people will go, oh, well, that's not good. You shouldn't be able to do that. We should have regulation. But all they're doing is they're saying, you shouldn't be the owner of that property. And the reason they're doing that is they're not thinking about the fact that when they take that ownership away from you and they give it to somebody else, they've actually created a worse system. Because if you own that 50 acres and you pour toxic waste on it and make it completely useless, you have automatically been demoted as an economic actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say that you take your, your million dollars you've saved up, you buy that 50 acres, you destroy it. In doing so, you're now a poor person, right? So you have gone from somebody that had a million dollars to now you're hoping to get a job, you know, operating the machine that shows sews shoes together. You've been greatly demoted in your level of power over the economic resources of the world. So it's an automatic and built-in system that's effective at rewarding people that are good managers of resources. And when I say good managers, I mean good managers of resources for other people's benefit. If you own that 50 acres and you serve yourself with it, 
you will lose it. The and you free won't market profit system, from it either. Exactly. The free market system will make you a poor person if you're a selfish jerk with your 50 acres. But if you use that 50 acres for the benefit of other people, for the benefit of your neighbors and mankind as a whole, that 50 acres will become 200 acres, will become 2,000 acres. So we have a very effective system in place. Now, if we take that 50 acres and we make a committee responsible for it, that committee can make good decisions or bad decisions, and they won't be economically punished, right? So they could pass a regulation. They could decide that they're going to make that 50 acres unproductive because they're going to require that you use certain drainage when you farm. Even though it doesn't affect other people's property, they can, they can pass some regulation. And they can actually benefit financially because maybe the person that installs the drainage system is throwing them a couple bucks. They can be rewarded economically as bad managers of that piece of property. That's not what we want. That's a bad system. So what about these these egalitarian systems that on paper they seem really good like you know i I mentioned a couple of them but like the note let's take the no child left behind act uh as a good example here like that that sounds really good you know every child deserves uh equal opportunity and they should all have a degree they should all have some sort of um visible achievement proof of their education none of them should be left behind we should bring them all down to the same level and and let them all be pushed forward as a team rather than letting these um, ones that might be developing faster or a little bit smarter letting them advance ahead we need to bring everyone down to the same level and make sure they know that they're all equal why is that such a bad idea so when you apply it to kids let's it's it's really the same same thing that's happening when you have a child like i uh I made Will uh, 14 years ago, and I have managed Will. Um, now, as a, as a Christian, I believe that Will is created in the image of God, and so there's a lot of constraints on sort of how I can manage him. I can't treat him like property. But as his parent, it's my responsibility to decide what sort of things that he learns, what sort of things he doesn't learn, what history books he reads, which one he discards. Um, and uh, and that that is my job as a parent, right? So I'm sort of managing him as a resource in a sense, but again, with a lot more constraints because he is he is an individual and he has his own God-given rights. Um, what this, these systems that sound good are are doing the sort of same thing that we were doing with the property. They're they're demoting me as the parent. They're removing me as the person that's responsible for his education, um, responsible for uh, deciding what things he learns and what activities he does, and putting a committee, you know, the Department of Education, in charge of that. Right. So he is effectively no longer going to be my child. Uh, he's effectively going to be somebody else's child. Because if they have the authority to decide what he does and doesn't learn and how he spends his time, I may be able to, to make a lot of decisions about Will's life, but they have to be in line with what the Department of Education wants. And, and I actually, in real life, I have had him study sections of history and learn things that are false so that when he has to take tests, he can make the false statements he needs to make to be submissive to the Department of Education. So, it, um, so that's ultimately what's going on here. There's a, a, a subversion of the role of a parent. But again, it's sold as a good thing, right? What is the goal is really important. The goal is for this committee to become the children's parents. And they'll sell it to you in various ways. They'll point out really bad parents, right? They'll say, oh, but some parents won't even teach their kids math. So, so really, this committee needs to be their parent. They won't use the, the word parent. 
they'll use lots of euphemisms and take things away. But if you actually define what it means to own a piece of 50 acres, or if you actually define what it means to be a parent, and think clearly about it, you can see that the goal is just for parents to lose that power and for the state, for the committee to gain that power. Uh, and they'll wrap that in uh, good propaganda, right? So they won't call it the, um, the we're your new daddy program. They'll call it the no child left behind program, which draws your attention away from the good parents to the bad parents and spins it so it looks like it's actually better for society as a whole. But everything about these programs have been a total disaster, just like, you know, the pilgrims almost starved to death when they tried egalitarianism. Uh, we will see our education system fail more and more as a result of uh, of the state taking ownership of, of people's kids. And that's uh, sort of the same old story played out with just a, a different spin on it. So you're basically saying here that these bad ideas, which are, which are enforced by uh, a very powerful central authority, in this case, it's, it's the state. And when we say state, we don't mean state government. We need the federal authority. Um, and they're packaged in such a way that they're, they're marketed to seem very appealing. Now, how does that sound familiar to some of the things that we deal with in, in Bitcoin? Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to fraud and theft, right? Um, I would say that when, when a state says, I'm going to make decisions about what your children do and don't read, I would say that's slavery, right? I've lost uh, the most important thing for me as a, as a human and as a parent is to have the freedom to decide what my kids read, you know, when they're under 10 years old, right? That's very, that's very fundamental to being free. Um, so I would say it, it, it goes to the point of, of slavery, but at very least it's, it's theft, right? It's taking stuff that belongs to me that I should be the economic manager, the, the resource manager of, and it's, it's taking that. And it's using lies to be able to pull that off on sort of a big scale. In crypto, what we see is is theft and fraud, right? And the idea is we're going to take advantage of people's misunderstanding about economics or about technology. We're gonna to lie to them, we're gonna trick them, and as a result, we're gonna part them from their hard-earned money. So there's definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of overlap there. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a legal system in place that punishes fraud. Um, it's actually rewarded more often than not. Uh, if it's done right, it's done well, it's done at scale, and it pays off the right criminals. Um, and that's why we are not seeing a whole lot of uh, enforcement on uh, fraud in crypto. And I'd like to make a distinction here that I think is really important that people understand. The way that Bitcoin is built, the way that the software is distributed, the way that the game theory works, Bitcoin in and of itself is a very private property, right? If you hold the private keys to Bitcoin, that is your property. And unless someone comes and takes that private key from you, there is no way, shape, or form for that property to be taken from you. It's simply impossible, just based on the nature of the way the software works. The same could not be said about the vast majority of other cryptocurrencies out there. Take, for example, XRP. XRP is not your private property because that is not a distributed software system and by its very nature is controlled by Ripple Labs in this example. 
Yeah, exactly. If uh, so, the whole idea, like your your reference to Ayn Rand, is a good one. Uh, the whole idea behind Bitcoin is the cypherpunk movement, and the idea behind the cypherpunk movement is essentially that once encryption was released into the wild, right? Once normal people had access to encryption, that was it was treat. I, I there was a time in my career where I had to be very very careful what code I moved overseas because I could be charged with exporting munitions. And it was really part of the big, uh, the big first battle of the cypherpunks was all around whether code is free speech or not, um, which is you know a pretty hot thing uh, in crypto right now. Um, but the idea that once encryption existed and it was in the wild, that it was military grade and normal people had access to it, especially once the Supreme Court determined that you know, it was a free speech issue and it was protected by the First Amendment to be able to write a few chunks of code that, that it could encrypt data and make that data completely inaccessible to anybody that that person didn't want it accessible to. Like it, it created a, um, in cyberspace, it created this, this magical sphere and you could put things inside this sphere and the only way to get access to those things that were in that sphere was to speak the right magic word. It's absolutely powerful and incredible. And guys like Tim May, uh, they saw that this was a, a huge development. And as a result, they realized that we could create uh, Galt's Gulch, to use the Ayn Rand reference. We could create this world in cyberspace that actually honored private property. Because when I have 50 acres and I am... Uh, I'm trying to enforce my private property rights. You know, if I'm if I'm in Waco, Texas, and enough FBI agents show up, even if I'm not violating any laws, I'm not violating any private property rights. I don't have the power to actually defend that. If I'm in cyberspace and I encrypt something, or I'm using Bitcoin to hold my digital cash that's that's using encryption technology, there is nobody that can violate my private property. There's nobody that can. Um, that can grab that. Now they can go into the meat space, right? And they can they can hit me with a five dollar wrench until I speak that magic word and unlock it in cyberspace. But the whole idea of the cypherpunk movement is that that's not effective. That that won't scale. That especially if we have enough anonymity um, when we're operating and when we're securing our stuff in cyberspace, it just won't be cost effective to go around and beat everybody to uh, to speak those magic words. And once we have a foothold, once we have a space where we can exchange economic value and we can be productive and we can solve problems, the, the game is over for the slave owners. The game is over for the egalitarians that want to control our private property because we're going to be able to use that to build more and more, uh, more and more tools that make us more and more powerful in the physical world. And this is contrasting quite a bit with the, uh, the guys that are trying to do seasteading or all these other harebrained schemes that are starting in meat space that think that they're going to be able to, you know, even though nothing has changed, they're going to be able to create a, a place where their private property won't be violated. Um, so it's a very good strategy and it's working really, really well. But something like XRP, they don't embrace that goal, let alone the methodology for getting there. They're very comfortable with the banks deciding what is and isn't your private property. Um, they're very comfortable with committees being the ones that decide how things work. They just want to be part of that committee. So we're starting to come full circle here um, on on why I feel like this egalitarian topic is so important. And 
I know you, for example, as a, having a background as a security researcher, this is something that you harp on a lot. But uh, I feel like, you know, if, if you're a listener and you haven't been exposed to a lot of these ideas in this depth before, you might be starting to understand, well, okay, if private property is the foundational building block of a free market, and we have all of these state authorities that don't respect private property rights, the obvious answer is, okay, well, then we need to come up with some sly roundabout way to borrow that phrase a little bit out of its context in order to have a way to protect this private property. And as a security researcher, JW talks a lot about how all of these other altcoin projects, every single one of them that is not Bitcoin, does not use a security model that most benefits trying to protect the private property aspect of Bitcoin as a currency. Yeah, one of the ways that you can think about this is that there are a lot of people that are motivated to create an asset that that works well as money that's hard to steal, right? So you can actually own it. And they've created this network called Bitcoin, and it's an open source project, right? Everybody can contribute to it, um, and it has by far more adoption and more security than anything else out there, right? Like nothing is even close to it. And if anything else that's out there comes up with any good ideas, because it's open source, it can it can suck in those ideas, right? So if uh, Zcash, for example, if all of those ideas weren't stupid and bad, you would see them in Bitcoin. Uh, Mimblewimble, not Grin and the scam coins that use it, but Mimblewimble itself is pretty cool. It's It's got some really interesting ideas and some interesting technology. And we're seeing th- those concepts refined and improved uh, sucked into Bitcoin and things like scriptless scripts. So there, there are, uh, there are, that that's probably the one exception too. And and it's, I mean, part of part of what the liars do is they're always trying to conflate scam coins and technology, right? Mimblewimble is technology. It's it's a mathematical trick. Um, Grin and Beam are two scam coins that are using that, uh, but. The real good ideas, they do get into Bitcoin uh, because it's an open source project. And we do have in Bitcoin uh, a lot of advantages that attracts the best talent to Bitcoin. So over time, we, we should expect Bitcoin to do better and better. So the question is, how do you make short-term cash in that environment? Well, you can't really do it with Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is a, is a long-term effort. We're trying to create global cash here. It's not going to happen overnight. But what you could do is you could create a scam and you could take advantage of this new technology and all of this excitement. And a lot of people that are early on that are like, you know, non-technologists being interested in electronic cash is pretty weird. We need it to happen, but it's kind of a weird thing that's happened. Um, And as a result, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of sheep that you can fleece. And so what they do is they, they sort of ignore all of those fundamental principles that I just talked about on how open source software works and the fact that we, we do have talented people and the, the majority of the talented people working on Bitcoin. And you'll get like one or two guys with a, with a background, like, you know, uh, David Chom. He's got a crazy great name, but unfortunately he's using that name and he it's just going to be him, right? It's going to be him, right. maybe one or two other guys, just like Zuko. He had a good name. Um, they're going to, they're going to spin up these projects that are not, they're not legitimate if you understand how open source software works because they don't have, they don't have a viable chance of success, right? It's, right. it's not, it's not like these guys are building, you know, an electronic car or electric car and it may or may not have the mileage that's required to be successful. These guys are saying that they're going to build a, a flying car made out of toothpaste, right? Like 
it, the technology just, it's not even viable from day one that they would be able to compete effectively with Bitcoin. And yes, if you understand the economics, they do have to compete effectively with Bitcoin. So these things are designed from the beginning to just take advantage of people that don't know what's going on. And that's not the same as building new technology. And, you know, eventually it'll be really clear. And I do think it's possible we'll repair the legal system enough to prosecute these guys. Well, I think that's a really good point. Uh, there is a lot of appeal to authority that goes on in the crypto space. And you see this, um, like, people tend to focus, unfortunately, on the face and the name behind projects rather than their idea and the content of their design. Uh, and I think that that's really dangerous because... There's a noticeable Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, if you're listening and you don't know, Dunning-Kruger is just sort of this this progression that you go through as you learn about a topic where when you first learn about a topic, maybe like the first six months to maybe in some cases it can take years that you study a topic, you think that you're an expert. Um, but then once you really break into the point where you actually become an expert on a topic, you realize how much you actually don't know. Uh, and and it's, it's a very exponential progression until you finally reach the breaking point where you understand how much you don't understand. Sort of when you recognize the unknown unknowns, so to speak. And uh, the reason that it's so dangerous in crypto, this Dunning-Kruger effect, is the fact that there is a feedback loop of profit for people that get involved in a lot of these altcoin scams that their, their dopamine in their brain is telling them that they're doing a good job, that they're making the right decisions. In a lot of cases, people have gotten extremely rich. I'm not going to say wealthy, but extremely rich from investing or trading or being involved in these altcoin scams. But on the long term, they're probably going to lose that money and not end up becoming wealthy because they don't understand Bitcoin and its real value proposition. Yeah, there is a way to make money on altcoins. Um, and the best way to think about it is just as a Ponzi scheme. So you let's say that, uh, let's say I want to make money on what David Chom is doing right now. And he's putting together some, you know, some, some, uh, some coin. Um, it's, it doesn't really have any viable long-term technology, but that's not the point. I would, I would want to, if I was trying to make money on that, get close to David Chom. Um, and actually, I think I could probably do that, right? Like, I, I think I have enough of a network as, uh, as who I am as JW. If I wanted to, I could probably get in there. And I do have enough money from doing previous startups and things like that, that I could I could work my way in and, and become a potential player, right? I don't have a huge audience, but that that would help me as well, right? Because I do have some audience that I could use to uh, to promote this, you know, scam coin X, right? So the name of the game there, because it, you recognize it's, it's not a long-term technology. It's just a Ponzi scheme where we're going to use marketing money and we're going to suck in new people. And if we can, if our sucker acquisition cost is lower than the amount of money that they put into the system when they buy these coins, then it can be very profitable. The problem is, is like with any Ponzi scheme, you get to a point where you, the sucker acquisition cost goes up because you get the dumb money in, like the, you get your your cheapest suckers right out of the gate, right? Like there, there are people that are just waiting with bated breath. Probably some of them are VCs just waiting for David Chom to release his coin. That money is going to come in with like basically no marketing spent, right? So sucker acquisition costs, really, really low profit, you know, essentially hundred percent. But as time goes on, your marketing spend has to go up higher and higher. You have to spend more money. You have to get on CNBC more times in order to get that same number of suckers to get into the system. The name of the game, though, 
especially in something that where the price moves around a lot, is just to be in that inner circle around David Chom and the, the the big money that's pushing it. Because I don't I can make money when the price goes up or when the price goes down, when the sucker acquisition cost is getting worse or when it's getting better. The key, though, is that I need to know what we're going to do next, right? So I need to know that, hey, we're going on CNBC tomorrow, um, and we haven't been on it before, and we're expecting a price bump. So then I can go and buy, I can buy some of these scam coins, right? I can buy some of the the Ponzi. They go on CNBC. You know, there's a marketing push. Maybe it's a few a few uh, other things going on in addition to CNBC. Um, you know, it's a good marketing push. Like we're about to spend five million dollars on marketing. Well, that's a good opportunity for me to buy some scam coins. Wait for that marketing spend to happen, and then the uh, the um, the price pump that comes along with that and then sell. Um, these markets aren't really liquid enough, but as an example, let's say that I am Charlie Lee with Litecoin and I'm about to announce that I've sold all my Litecoin, right? That's going to probably have a negative impact on the price. Now, if JW was close to Charlie Lee, I could profit from that because Charlie could give me a heads up and be like, hey, just want to let you know I'm going to tweet out tomorrow that I'm going to sell all my Litecoin. Well, I would sell my Litecoin at that point, right? Because I'm mm-hmm. I'm not, this is not a long-term technology that has any chance of being adopted as global money. That's the difference between Litecoin and Bitcoin. It's just this short-term scam. So I would sell my Litecoin before he made that announcement. And if I could, I might even short it, right? I might even borrow a bunch of other people's Litecoin and tell them I'll give it to them in a week. Then Charlie makes that announcement and I get, you know, basically 100% profit on this loan. And I hand it back to the people in a week when it's less valuable. Um, so there, there are definitely ways to profit in scams and Ponzi schemes. They do have some legal risk, but you know, like I said, the justice system is so screwed up that that's not really much of an issue. Um, one of the best places that I would do this if I was trying to pull this off is I would connect with the guys at Coinbase. Like at this point, they have a really good track record of doing things like Bcash. And you can see that there's insider trading happening oh, days yeah. before they list something. So I know people are making money and if i really wanted to i i could probably get to to be connected to that inner circle you know there'd be some checks that would have to be written up front uh, but that's how you make money in altcoins it's shady it's it's dishonest and it's not something that uh, that you can do and, and still be ethical but um you know that's how you do it. What you don't do is you don't do what a lot of what the suckers are doing, and that's somehow thinking that there's not an inner circle making these decisions and trying to trade, you know, based on squiggly lines on a chart. Like whatever the price uh, squiggles were before Litecoin, couldn't have told you that Charlie Lee was going to make an announcement that he sold all his Litecoin. It, there, it, it, it is not reflected in those squiggly lines. So right. those are the guys that are suckers, right? You take Tone Vase course and you start trading altcoins. That is, um, that's what you don't want to do. But as me, let's say JW got into that inner circle, I'd probably fund people like Tone Vase to run around. Oh, yeah. that, that reduces my sucker acquisition cost. The more Provides people that believe- Provides liquidity for your scam too. Exactly. The more people that believe in technical analysis, the more people I can have in the play when Charlie says, hey, psh, JW, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an announcement on Twitter tomorrow. That's all good. So I would fund that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how you play the game. If you're going to play the game, at least play it like a man and, and pony up and write the yeah. checks that you need to play. And I think it's worth pointing out that these are not new scams. I mean, this kind of thing is 
part and parcel daily life in the world of penny stocks, like pink sheets, over-the-counter stocks, that stocks that are not listed on major uh, equity exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange. This is just a daily occurrence. Un- insider trading, pump and dump scamming, buy the dip mentalities, trading groups pumping up prices, fake volume, all of this stuff, like inner circles, all of this stuff is... It, it's not new. And, and, and if you haven't been exposed to, uh, I, th- I think that if you go take like some sort of crash course in the way penny stocks really work, it, it will really take the scales off your eyes on a lot of the scamming that goes on in the, uh, in the crypto space. But I yeah, actually it, feel... Oh, I, I was just going to say, to bring it back to egalitarianism um, and, and that sort of discussion around education, the, uh, the most profitable way that humans have found to fleece a population is exactly this, this mechanism. You, uh, the, the only thing that maybe gives it a little bit of a run for its money is uh, combining it with central banking. But what you want to do, let's say that you have a, a, a hundred thousand people. What you want to do is you want to get control of education. And Hans Hermann Hoppe talks about this. I don't know if it's in Democracy, the God that Failed, but the, the different uh, sectors of the economy that you want to have a monopoly on. And one of them is banking, but one of them is education. So if you can get this, this population, these hundred thousand people to let you take ownership of their children and you be responsible to educate them, one of the things that you're going to want to push really hard in addition to egalitarianism is the idea that they should be invested in stocks and bonds, that they Mm -hmm. should be in play, that it's not a good idea to have their money in a mattress that you really want them to have their money in a 401k or in a pension plan that essentially puts money into, you know, in, into, into play so that, that you can do the ultimate money-making scheme. And the ultimate money-making scheme is when you have control of the Federal Reserve, you make an announcement, right? So Charlie Lee can make an announcement that he's going to sell, that he's sold all his Litecoin, and that moves the price. Now, that's where you make money because you know what the price is going to do before everybody else. If you're the Federal Reserve or if you, you, you have ownership of the Federal Reserve, you can make an announcement that you're going to raise interest rates. You can actually just make an announcement that you might make an announcement that you're thinking about making an announcement that you're going to raise interest rates. And they do this all the time. Hmm. Um, and that will affect the entire stock market, right? So you have this population of suckers that they're either day trading or they're just like, you know, a poor truck driver that's trying to provide for his family that has money in a pension fund. But with multiple intermediaries, it's in the stock market, right? And so you as the insider say, hey, we're going to raise interest rates. The market tanks and you've either shorted it or you buy it when it's cheap. Um, so that is exactly what these guys are doing just at a smaller scale. Hmm. And yeah, and to kind of add on to that, one of the ways that they, that they successfully pull this off is, is using a lot of jargon, uh, presenting a lot of complicated looking formulas and charts, um, creating like a sort of gated management community, like you see in the, in the financial management world to, to sort of give you the illusion that this is not something that you'd be able to do. You're better off giving your money to someone else, letting them make all of the tough decisions for you because, oh, you know, you're just a, you're just a dentist. You don't know anything about markets. You don't understand how they work. Give us your money. We'll take good care of you. Obviously we'll take a little fee off the top, but we're going to manage this for you. We're going to give you a nice diversified portfolio. You're going to have great returns. Turns. And uh, it, it's it's ultimately it's a scam. I, I I have completely seen through the facade of the the 
traditional investing market. And I am left with a very bitter taste in my mouth, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a system that has evolved over time to uh, to steal and, and do it effectively and do it well. And it is very complicated, uh, but it's very complicated by design. Like just, just to understand what the Federal Reserve does um, is intentionally very, very complicated. Like is the Federal Reserve private? Is it public? Does the president actually have power over the Federal Reserve or is it independent? Like there's a lot of money to be made by creating that confusion just like there's a lot of money to be made by creating a lot of confusion in crypto. Um, so I guess if I was to make an analogy between the Federal Reserve and the system of everybody having their life savings in the stock market and the insiders being able to move the needle on the stock market and profit, the uh, let's say the, the, the chair of the Federal Reserve, the analogy would, would be the head of these cryptocurrencies, right? So if you're Vitalik, you can make an announcement and you can move the price of, of crypto. But then you need, uh, you need to suck in dumb money as much as possible. So on, the, um, on the, the government Federal Reserve side, that would be like these broker dealers, these mom and pop shops that suck in people uh, to, to manage their mutual funds, right? Um, on the crypto side, that's going to be guys like technical analysis traders, right? Their model is a little bit different because it's you, you own your own keys. That's too much of a mantra to actually just give somebody ownership. Although, you know, Coinbase uh, is kind of doing that, that role as well. But, uh, but a good analogy would be, you know, the little mom and shop offices of Fidelity in crypto, that's the technical analysis uh, trader guys that are teaching classes and, and charging for access to their Telegram groups. And they go out and they they encourage people to buy these crap coins just the way Fidelity encourages people to buy, you know, shares of Tesla and SolarCity and all of these sort of things. Um, so it is a very it's a very similar structure and a very similar system. And the best thing that I think people can do is don't buy stuff that you don't understand. Like the US dollar sucks. Uh, it does go down in value, but it doesn't, if you're in the United States, it's not a terrible option. It doesn't go down as value as fast as a lot of other things. And if you don't want to be 55 on the edge of retirement, and then the Fed decides that they're going to raise interest rates and that destroys your life savings, just don't buy stuff you don't understand. Um, invest in education, right? Become a more skilled person. If you are, uh, if you're a truck driver and you're hoping that you're going to retire because you're putting money with Fidelity, you're not. They're probably going to find a way to screw you out of that by making an announcement or deciding that it's time for the bust as part of the boom and bust cycle that we've all lived through for more than you know 30 years old. Uh, don't do that. Don't fall for that scheme. Yes, the dollars are going to decrease in value. You know, you could try to buy stuff like land. You can try to buy stuff like gold. All of those have downsides too. The best you could probably do is try to be in out of it as much as possible, but learn skills that make you more and more valuable. And if at some point those skills evolve to the point where you have special insight into things that you can buy or sell, that you know that they're more valuable than everybody else, then do it. Then you can be a speculator. But don't fall for the trick that you should be a speculator by proxy when you have no knowledge of what's going on in the market. Because there is an insider group there's an insider group at the Fed, there's an insider group at Litecoin, and their whole business is to screw you over, and they're pretty good at it. So I have one last question um, before we start to wrap this up. Oh, and I would say, just uh, to add to what you just said, you know, listen to this podcast, go play MathBot 
uh, go to mathbot.com, play mathbot, go to 10hoursofbitcoin.com, go through the educational material there. Educate yourself on Bitcoin, become a master on Bitcoin, because I'm telling you right now that Bitcoin is a tremendous opportunity and it's going to it's gonna change the world and people just don't, most people just don't see it yet. Um, so I, I would encourage you guys to do all those things and continue listening to this podcast and hopefully I can help you guys on this journey to both increasing my understanding and helping increase your understanding. Um, JW, I have one more question for you. So I, I spend a lot of time looking at like global markets, mostly because I'm watching from a distance with my bag of popcorn and my Bitcoins. Um, I think that we have a pretty big recession coming up, possibly one of the biggest ones that we have ever seen uh, on a global scale. And people might argue with me on that, but I see these uh, yield curves inverting and I don't see anything good coming from it. But what I think is so interesting is that uh, interest rates have been lower than they've ever been for longer than they've ever been at the central bank level. And I think that there is a, a really big fallout on its way. Um, but it just so happens that it's going to coincide very, very closely with the next Bitcoin having. Do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, it, it's tough, man. I mean, it's really hard to know what's going to happen. We had a long history of about every seven years having a recession. And it, it seemed like the Fed had decided. Um, so what you're talking about there is the boom and bust cycle. If you guys want to understand what's going on with economics, um, the book to read is Human Action, if you can do that. Um, there is a an easier version of Human Action. Uh, Bob Murphy wrote a book um, called uh, Choice. And uh, that's where he tries to take human action. Awesome that you have that. Good job, man. Um, he tries to take human action and make it a little bit easier to understand. Um, and I, I recommend that book uh, a lot as sort of a, a first thing if you want to understand the boom and bust cycle. But as a quick overview, the, the people that control the money, they make interest rates cheap. They make it easy uh, to get a hold of money by lowering interest rates. So the rent that you pay for money is lower. Um, that results in a lot of investments and a lot of investments that are actually stupid investments that shouldn't happen because people are um, getting access to resources at a cheaper level than they should. And so they're make, they're they're building buildings, they're buying houses, they're doing whatever um, that they wouldn't otherwise do because these interest rates are so low. It seems like this is a good deal, right? It seems like a profitable project. Eventually, though, the only reason that those interest rates can stay low is because the Fed is actually increasing the money supply. That's how they reduce the interest rates. Um, so like, if there's a lot of housing, you pay less rent on your house. If there's a lot of money, you pay less rent on your money. That's the interest rate. So by reducing the interest rates um, and increasing the money supply, people make a lot of investments, but eventually they have to stop because if they continue to increase the money supply, the value of that money goes down to the point where we could end up in a hyperinflation situation where instead of maybe eating into the value of money at five or six percent per year, it goes to a Venezuela type situation where you know the money is just totally bad. So what they have to do at some point is stop. And when they stop uh, printing money, uh, it's it's a euphemism to simplify things, right? Credit they, creation. Yeah, yeah. When they when they when they decrease the well when they increase the interest rate, let's say when they increase the interest rate, a lot of these projects become obviously a really bad idea, and that is where you have a recession and you have people laid off and and bad things happen. Of course, the Federal Reserve never says it was their fault. It, they'll usually take responsibility twenty to thirty years later, um, just like any other sort of government operation after after everybody's well out of office that it's fine to, sure. to take responsibility. Then, but, then they'll sell their memoirs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but 
we we've seen that cycle and it seemed like the fed wanted to have that cycle happen about every seven years so as the fed i i was uh, i was fleecing the flock aggressively about every seven years and that seemed to be the habit but now since 2008 we've seen a long period of time where they've kept interest rates they've increased the money supply so drastically that we could be looking at a hyperinflation situation right we could become venezuela but they're actually pretty good slave owners. So my argument for a bull market continuing is these guys have gotten very, very good at screwing over people. And they're, they know that there's been an incredible amount of economic growth, right? So as the slave owner, I want to increase the money supply and give it to my friends, right? It hits my friends before it hits the mom and pop shop, right? That's, that's one of the part of the game. The Cantillion um, effect. Yeah, exactly. And I also, you know, I'm I'm buying and selling stocks, right? So when there's a boom, I'm holding I'm holding stocks. When there's a bust, I sell the stocks before everybody else. That that's really where uh, a lot of the a lot of the the fleecing comes in. But it's possible that these guys have seen that between the explosion in technology, um, the explosion in access to low cost energy, um, that they they are actually doing a good job. Right, so maybe they're screwing over people at an unprecedented scale, but that's because we can bear the weight because we're so much more productive today than we were 30 years ago or 20 years ago. So that would be sort of the bullish case that this can continue. I do think there are a lot of like uh, you know inverting the yield curve and some other things have been good indicators in the past. Um, so it is very possible that we're about to see it. But all of that well, to say, I don't know, man. I mean, that's yeah. the beauty of being Charlie Lee, right? That's the yeah. beauty of being at the head of the Federal Reserve, you get to flip the switch and you get to move stuff around. And I haven't written the checks. You know, I haven't been to enough $10,000 dinners um, at the Federal Reserve for them to tell me. But I can say that it, it usually doesn't happen forever. Um, it, but it's happened a lot longer than it ever has before. So can it go on for another four years? I, I really, I really don't know. Well, that was a, a great explanation. Uh, and I appreciate that. But I was actually mostly just asking how you think it's going to affect Bitcoin because I'm looking at because uh, it's I think it's going to coincide with this next having just basic just from my understanding of markets and I'm not an expert um, but looking at historical trends I think it's going to coincide pretty closely with this next Bitcoin having and if you look at the case studies you know if you look at these countries that have gone through serious uh, economic and financial crises while Bitcoin exists you see huge volume spikes in Bitcoin trading at the local level and Bitcoin trades at huge premiums in those countries that are experiencing uh, this economic fallout. And how do you, how do you think that, that All right, could so happen I'll, here? I'll give, you, uh, I'll give you my bullish and my bearish case for the price okay. of Bitcoin over the next five years. Um, okay. Now, my, my case for Bitcoin being a good investment over the next 14 years, my prediction is that Bitcoin will become global money in 14 years. I got into Bitcoin last year and I said 15 years. So I, I still feel good about my, uh, my prediction that 14 years from now, a Bitcoin will be worth more than a million dollars. I agree. Obviously, big picture, I'm super bullish. Um, but let's say within the next three years, or, or let's say two years, I'll give you my most bearish case for Bitcoin in the next two years. Um, most people are excited about Bitcoin for programmable money. That's that's not actually a feature of Bitcoin. Uh, the US dollar can be programmable money 
just as easily as Bitcoin can, and arguably even easier because it's centralized. And mm-hmm. we're starting to see that with uh, fiat coins, um, you know, Gemini dollars and things like that are starting to come online. If they get their head out of their butt and they actually tie Gemini dollars to something like Liquid or maybe even something like RGB on Bitcoin, they're going to have um, they're going to have uh, very easily programmable money. And for most applications, like if I want to buy something at Amazon. I would much rather have the ability to have essentially a self-sovereign to whatever degree as possible when you're talking about fiat, right? But uh, a, a pretty uh, difficult to steal private key that represents some fiat coins and be able to transfer those fiat coins, you know, and have fungibility and anonymity um, to be able to transfer those fiat coins to Amazon and get my stuff, right? Because fiat is right now more stable than Bitcoin and it will be for for at least the next two years, there's no quite. It, it might uh, appreciate or depreciate, but it's it's not likely to stay stable over the next two years. It's going to be more liquid, right? So uh, money is actually still, if you're in the U.S. and you're buying and selling things with other people in the U.S., it is the U.S. dollar, right? And so uh, programmable money is something that has pushed Bitcoin's price some degree higher. Um, and that that meme is going to go away. Uh, that this is my my my. Uh, bullish case, right? Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, we're going to see a decrease in price in Bitcoin. Okay. Um, now, I'm not saying that I think this is the case. I'm going to give you my bearish case in the minute over the next two years, but I'm I'm exposing my own ignorance here because I I could see either one of these things playing out, um, and they're they're both pretty extreme over the next two years. So that would push the price down. Now, let's say that we also have a global recession happen. Global recessions are usually not all good, right? It could mm-hmm. be good for Bitcoin, um, but I think it's more likely that if we see a ton of people wake up poor over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of people that have Bitcoin that are going to have to sell it just to mm-hmm. try to maintain their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that could hurt the price of Bitcoin over the next two years as well. Um, so that would be my sort of uh, bearish case. Now, mm-hmm. my bullish case for Bitcoin over the next two years is the whole point of having, um, well, one of, one of the things about having fiat is that you want to be able to control the flow of it. You don't want people to have private electronic cash. You want to be able to tax people. And if they actually give people anything close to what uh, what would be reasonably private programmable money in the form of US dollars, they're going to cut their own throats on taxation. So they're not going to do that. Um, I also think it's very possible that they're not going to allow you to move coins around without KYC, right? It's it's unclear yet, but it wouldn't at all surprise me if they say, okay, JW, you can have some uh, Gemini coins and you can send them to Colin, but you got to make sure that Colin is on a list or Colin only gets an address if it's registered or something like that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it's very possible that we won't see uh, stable coins perform the task that it appears that they're trying that. I mean, right now it, it does appear that they're being given a lot more leeway than I think anybody would have expected, but it's very possible that that is a well, short-term small thing and they're going to start cutting. We've already seen a little bit of uh, regulatory precedent for this in Texas, where there was the bill that was presented that basically required KYC on both ends um, for anybody conducting like a a digital currency transaction. Right. Yep. So that would be very bullish for Bitcoin because that that uh, that makes that makes Bitcoin stack up even better uh, to uh, 
its competitor, right? The big competitor that Bitcoin has is fiat currency. It's not all these stupid scam coins. Um, so that would be that would be my my bullish case for it. I also think the halving is pretty interesting. I mean, I don't think a lot of people understand how scarce Bitcoin is, and oh. I think those halving moments really do. Uh, shock the system where people go, oh, wow, there's a lot less of these things floating around. So people, that yeah, could people have no idea what's coming. They, they just, they don't get it. They don't understand this. And I guess the last point of my bullish case is that education is accelerating. People are more and more like Austrian economics. If I talked about it five years ago, almost nobody knew what I was talking about because of Bitcoin, people are learning that the U S dollar is a scam and that they're being fleeced. And that is causing them. That's this virtuous cycle of I'm interested in Bitcoin. This is weird and interesting. I learn enough about economics to know that I don't want to support uh, the wars and the, just the evil that comes out of central banking. And then they get more excited about Bitcoin and talk to more people about it. So I feel like that is accelerating. Um, and look, the, the, the other thing that's happening here is any minute we're supposed to get, you know, this announcement of this partnership with Bact and Starbucks. And, you know, there, there are a lot of really interesting possibilities that never existed before because this couldn't have happened a year ago. Amazon mm. could not have used Bitcoin a year ago. That is a huge statement. Amazon could use Bitcoin today. That's right. amazing. So yeah. there, that that's probably the biggest uh, bullish case that I could make. But honestly, I think anywhere within that sort of very wide cone is very possible over the next two years. And my answer is, I just there's there's so many questions in sh the short period about any investment that I never invest in anything unless I'm sure that I don't need that money for at least five years. Cause I don't yeah. know what the hell I'm doing over the short term. Definitely. Well, uh, JW, we're just about out of time, but I am very excited about the future. I'm excited to see what's going to happen. This is all so exciting to watch happen. Uh, real quick for the listeners, go ahead and let everyone know where they can find you and what projects you're working on. Yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at JWWeatherman underscore. Um, and uh, the, the big thing I'm working on is trying to uh, separate school and state. Um, and the, the best way to start is with math and programming education. Um, and the best way to do that, I think, is by creating a game that makes learning math and programming really fun so that it's very obvious. You know, When you have a seven-year-old that can program recursive functions, it's going to be much harder for some 26-year-old girl with a degree in education to convince their parents they need to be chemically lobotomized with uh, speed. So um, anything that you guys can do to help get the word out about this game there's nothing uh, political about it it's just you learn math and programming but it's got a lot of political implications because competent people do different things than than idiots um so uh yeah the most the more you can encourage people to check out mathbot.com if you know if there's kids that are on uh on ridlin or adderall or whatever um because they don't perform well in math uh sick them on this game and uh the trend will continue i'm constantly getting people telling me hey you know i have this kid uh that's been diagnosed with asperger's or maybe even all the way up to light autism uh because they've got the spectrum concept now i put them in front of mathbot they just killed it they outperformed my other kids that are supposedly normal. Um, and that's not because they're freaking Rain Man. It's because the game doesn't suck and it's not stupid. And uh, these smart kids don't want to do stupid tasks. So uh, check it out, mathbot.com, sign up. Uh, it doesn't cost anything to play it. And uh, yeah, then give me feedback on Twitter at JWWeatherman underscore. Fantastic. JW, I, this was a great conversation. I appreciate you joining me. 
Yeah, man, it was it was fun. Really cool topic. I I love this is like I would say this is maybe my favorite podcast I've ever done because we got to talk about like very fundamental philosophy. Uh, it it actually reminds me a little bit of my Cody Wilson interview because we just got to talk about like really basic stuff and then look at the implications of that. It wasn't just like sound bites. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, man. I think people are going to like this one. So uh, I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Right on, man. Thanks. All right, guys. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I always, really, it is always a privilege to get to talk with JW because he is a wealth of knowledge and experience. And I've gotten to know him quite well personally, and he's just a genuinely very, very kind-hearted, very intelligent, very down-to-earth type of guy. And those are my people, man. Those are the type of people that I like to spend time talking with and bounce ideas off of and uh, the the best types of people to develop relationships with. And that's one of the reasons that I uh, regularly bring up JW's MathBot program because it's entirely free right now. You, You can play MathBot completely for free. And I think that it does a really good job at trying to teach anybody, not even just kids, anybody who wants to learn math and programming, it allows you to teach that just by playing a game. And I think that that's such a valuable fundamental skill. You know, in this world, there's really no excuse uh, for not being somewhat code literate. Maybe you can't write code, but you should be able to at least read code and understand a little bit about what you're looking at. It'll really help you, especially if you're interested in in Bitcoin and the way the future is headed towards a, a totally digital economy it would behoove you to brush up on your understanding of these things. I mean, imagine living in in the world today without knowing how to read, right? We're kind of heading towards a world where that's what it's going to be like if you can't read code. So uh, check out methbot.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, especially if you enjoyed today's episode. Please give me stars, thumbs up, likes, whatever whatever it is that you can give me. It, It helps me out a lot. And Feel free to go over to BitcoinEchoChamber.com. Check out the site. If you want to know more about how you can support the show, I have a couple of links over there where you can uh, support through Lightning or Patreon. Or if you just want to reach out and, and give me a comment, you know, like in an email or or something like that, I really appreciate it. And I take the time to talk to pretty much everybody that reaches out to me online. So I will get back to you and, and just say thanks, you know, for listening and, and thanks for the kind words. But that's all I got for this one, guys. And I will see you next week.